0: Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. BofAML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: We start the morning off with a surveillance correction. It is not Tom Keen and David Gura; It's Tom Keen and me, Michael McKee, sitting in for David Gura. He'll be out in Sun Valley later this week. Poor guy. Uh... We'll hear from him, I'm sure. He'll be talking to the CEOs uh, out there uh, who are gathering for the uh, annual meeting in uh, Sun Valley, and that will be quite interesting. But uh, the rest of us have to get through the week and get through the summer. And for those of you listening to us on Bloomberg 1130 in New York, on your way into Penn Station, our deepest sympathies. It all starts today, the summer of hell, as the governor of New York puts it, as they rebuild the track in and out of Penn Station. So uh, try to relax, listen to Tom and I, and uh, we will have a better week, I'm sure, for John Tucker's laughing. (laughs) Trying to relax by listening to you? (laughs) Well, anyway, we're going to do our best to try to keep you entertained. Uh, Good morning, Thomas. Um, It's like old times again.
0: It is. It is. Good morning. It's nice to be here. We have, we have a president tweeting. We'll have some of the updates on him. Um, He's talking about health care.
1: When is the president not tweeting? I That's guess. true. That would be news. Yeah. Um,
0: and Carl
2: Weinberg is with us here from High Frequency <coughs> Economics. So yeah. it is an Good old morning. home week for all of us. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'm so amused to hear you talk about the summer of hell at Penn Station. I, last, so I go through it every week, and I thought last summer when things were normal was a summer of hell. <laughs> I don't really see how they could possibly make it worse.
1: For those of you around the nation, you um, who are listening to us, the tracks that run in and out of Penn Station are very old, deferred maintenance. You want to talk about an infrastructure plan? That's where they could use it. Anyway, um, for months now, trains have been derailing coming in and out of the station, so they decided to just rip the scab you know, go all at once and uh, fix all the tracks. So they have to change all the timetables and uh, transit. We, we should point out this is just a temporary measure Yes, a temporary well. measure. The, 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 anyway, uh, if you commute into and out of uh, New York, it's going to be difficult on the trains uh, if you're going in and out of Penn Station. So that's what we're talking about, and it'll be a big topic in New York. And the rest of you are just very glad you can jump in your cars and drive to work and forget about us. Um, can't do that uh, in... Uh, Washington, if you're the president of the United States, you have to ride around in a limousine. You know, you, know, you don't
2: get to drive Has he ever been to Penn car. Station? Has anybody asked that question? That's a good question. Um, is his hometown, I know we were just talking with Chandra on television about, you know, is the president engaged in this infrastructure project? This is a real infrastructure project. Has he ever visited the site <laughs> to just see what it's like to be in Penn Station, to be like a, a real American? Well, he did, as you say. He's from New York. He probably has
1: been there. He certainly was at Grand Central because that was his first big project, the Hyatt Hotel that's adjacent to
2: Grand Central. So I don't know about Penn Station. But uh, infrastructure seems um, a long way away. And, you know, Amtrak sent me an email as a user from upstate that one of my trains is going to be rerouted through to Grand Central. They apologize for the inconvenience. And I said, go for it. You know, just keep it that (laughs) way. You know, it it has to be a big improvement. We, uh,
1: We have a headline here, Tom. Cincinnati Bell is going to combine with Hawaiian Telecom and ONX. That is the I, I
0: think that needs research, John Tucker. I think we need to research that transaction in somewhere like in the third person. week of February.
1: Uh, <laughs> they obviously uh, serve um, the Cincinnati area, northern Kentucky, etc., Cincinnati Bell, and yeah. we know where Hawaiian Telecom is uh Price about $850 million Small deal. earlier uh, Bloomberg was reporting So anyway, that deal going through
0: Good morning everyone, Bloomberg Surveillance We welcome all of you worldwide across this nation Sirius XM, Channel 119 In Boston, Bloomberg 1061 FM Good morning, 99.1 FM in Washington 1130 here in New York Good morning in Penn Station Many people like wired up I actually ran into a guy in the street once He goes, oh it's you and he was listening to us, Mike you and me on uh, this is a couple years ago on uh, on uh, radio as well on the West Coast very early nine sixty the Bay Area San Francisco good morning Carl Weinberg with us with high frequency economics Carl Madame Lagarde and the IMF say we've got okay global uh, GDP growth emerging market growth as well how are the developed nations doing
2: Yeah. You know they're doing they're doing better. <laughs> how, than do, how do you spell that? They, they're doing better. The the, the the emerging countries are doing better than the uh, advanced countries are for sure. Uh, although to be fair, any emerging market economy that produces a commodity, particularly oil, uh, particularly uh, things like iron ore, steel, things like that, you know, they're going to be in trouble uh, in a number of different dimensions. They're going to face a reduction in demand. They're going to face a reduction in revenue. They're facing adverse terms of trade. So it's not all quite as keen as uh, the picture that's being painted. I wouldn't be surprised if oil prices stay where they are, and I actually expect they're going to go lower, that the IMF will mark down its forecasts both for world trade and for world GDP growth again in their forecasts for the uh, ahead of their annual meetings in Washington this fall.
1: I know you're an economist and not an investment advisor, but
2: would you put money
1: into an emerging market, or is it too, are they too dependent at this point
2: on what happens in the developed nations that it would be a risk so I don't give investment advice, but it seems to me that if you're looking at it, say a place like China which grows at six and three quarter percent in a bad year and you hold that up against the United States which grows at two percent plus in a good year, then you kind of wonder you know why wouldn't you want to put your investment money into the economy that's growing faster if you're interested in something like cars, why would a car company or an investor investing in a car company want to invest in an auto company that only sells replacement vehicles in a market of 300 million people when it can invest in a company that is selling to fill 650 million empty driveways, all right, first cars, uh, first purchases of cars for many of those people. So I think that the long-term growth potential is in the emerging market. Short-term, there'll be bumps, but longer-term, that's where the action is, I think.
1: Uh, developed markets. Uh, the, uh, well, they're not all developed markets in the G20, because certainly it's Saudi Arabia is a frontier it's market. A it's a mix. Uh, what did you think of the G20 now that it is over? And, I mean, was there anything actionable for investors? Anything? Any
2: takeaways that the Wall Street community would care about? Not really a lot of takeaways uh, for Wall Street. Uh, Certainly um, nothing out of the bilaterals. Uh, We're probably going to see tariffs on steel, but everybody knew about that beforehand. What struck me for people who just think about the world... and again, we're going to bring China into this conversation at this point, is that the G20 didn't do anything. It fractioned itself uh, and was divided on key issues. And just a couple of months before, China had its one belt, one road forum in Beijing on the 14th of May, and they attracted 29 heads of state, 30 counting the President Xi himself, another 26 ministerial level delegations, and they all sat down and they all agreed that expanding trade along the Silk Roads that China is building is a great idea, and we're all able to come together on common policies to make that so. So if I had a big aha as everybody left the G20 this week, it's that China's One Belt, One Road forum is probably the successor to G20 in terms of moving the world forward as the U.S. disengages. We,
1: we have to take a surveillance timeout here and ask for a definition. I mean, we talk a lot about One
2: Belt, One Road. What does that mean? What, what is this that you're talking about? <laughs> so, it's John a, Tucker wants to know. It's a, it's a project that is to, designed to build a land route and a maritime route that connects East Asia with Europe directly over Central Asia. And what it is, it's a combination of railroads, road roads, shipping lanes, all the infrastructure along the way. It gets goods from Asia to Europe in 19 days instead of 60 days at a much lower cost than sending it by boat. And most importantly, it connects four 0.4 0.4 billion consumers, 40%, 60% of the world's population, producing 25% of world GDP. So a guy who makes socks yeah. in England can now sell them to 4 billion more customers than he could before.
0: I want to come back and talk about domestic policy, but very quickly here. Sahil Kapoor has a superb article out today with a great quote A train wreck of a calendar. Do you and Jim O'Sullivan agree it's a train wreck of a legislative calendar?
2: It's a train wreck of a legislative agenda. The policy, of the party in control of Congress cannot agree with either themselves or with their president as to what ought to be done. Nothing's going to happen.
0: And and I've seen uh, Mike McKee, one of our best, best guests, Greg Vallier of Horizon Investments. He has changed dramatically in the last 10 days to a much more dark view of the process. And he said on Bloomberg Surveillance this morning, he thinks the House is in play. Totally in play for 2018.
1: That's interesting uh, with Greg Valle this morning writing that the, the Republicans' biggest enemies have turned out to be Republicans. Yeah, and you know to their own surprise. But he
0: went over to Europe and had a latte with Francine Lacroix or mm. whatever, and he just came back gloomy. Unlike you know, <laughs> you know just uh, just a shocking change in in young Vallee's uh, tone. We're going to continue with Carl Weinberg. A lot to talk about. Mike McKee is loaded up with Fed. Do you know what it's like, folks? I mean, like I talk about the news. Michael, Michael Barr talks about the news. Mike McKee actually, Michael Barr, Mike McKee is in the room when Chair Yellen waxes Philosophical.
3: I, see, he takes I've al- notes. I've always loved Mike McKee.
0: It's just amazing. <laughs> he's there. We'll cover that uh, with Michael McKee today as Mr. Gura is off. He's he's doing reporting from Italy with Francine Lacroix. They're there with their families. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, having They'd like that. Pellegrino or Orangina or something like that. Futures up to... Michael McKee with us with Carl Weinberg. Why don't you bring in the I'm here because
1: David Gura Doctor. went out to Idaho because he was afraid of. <laughs> He's going to stay out Good there all move. summer. I think Good Carl move. Weinberg commuted in because you're in Valhalla, New York, but your train's not. You go into Grand Central, right?
2: No, my home is up in Rhinebeck, so I'm an Amtrak. Oh, passenger you're an Amtrak. going you're in into Reinbeck, Penn Station. Yeah, yeah so uh, I'm affected by it. Although, frankly, you know the the services was so bad. You know, I always say on-time Amtrak time, an hour late. And uh, the service was so bad up to this time that it probably will be inconceivable to get it. <laughs> you won't worse. notice the difference. In they are running some trains into Grand Central, which is a considerable upgrade from going into Penn Station. The Amtrak has apologized for this improvement in the terminal at the other end. But I'm personally hoping that this inconvenience lasts like forever.
1: When I was on the show regularly, Tom taught, taught me about... Uh, segways, which he calls segues. segues. Yeah. Yeah, segues. Uh, we're going to segwee here because Amtrak has a lot of problem with its service because Congress starves Amtrak of funding. And that gets us to Congress, which is where Tom wanted to go before the break. Uh, and uh, the summer of hell for uh, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. They can't get anything through. Uh, and right now it looks like health care is on life support if it's indeed still breathing And they still haven't got a budget set up for the end of September. We've got the debt ceiling out there. Um, It doesn't seem to have registered yet on Wall Street, but there are some uh, possible train wrecks to Segui back again
2: ahead. Yeah, um, you have to hope that people are going to get their heads together in Washington uh, to support uh, keeping the funding for the nation going. Uh, That's obviously a big, uh, hard deck that we have to uh, face as we get into the fall. I'm optimistic that Democrats will be able to come together with Republicans and have some bipartisan approach to uh, getting that done. That should be a a non-issue. But on the, the more challenging issues, you know, it just doesn't seem to be happening. We're not getting anything done. Republicans cannot agree amongst themselves as to what the program ought to be it's hard to imagine that they're going to be able to get through uh, any of the complicated hard issues like the health care or even you know the the fiscal reform infrastructure maybe maybe democrats can get on board with some republicans and get some uh, infrastructure spending done but that's really about it and there won't be a lot of it when
1: they do move forward um do you think we see any kind of government shutdown at the end of September when
2: you know they have to have some sort of budget passed? Or are we so hopelessly gnarled that, that we take a few days off? Well, I'm hopeful that we don't get to that point. I think that both sides of the aisle have seen uh, the folly of going that route, that the nation doesn't approve of that kind of behavior. They expect Congress to do the job of uh, keeping the nation running rather than uh, doing the job mm-hmm. of obstructing it. So I, I would like to hope that we don't get to that point.
0: You've been brilliant like page eight of your 10-page report on saying interest rates aren't going to go up. You got loads of charts, country by country charts. Do you stand with the idea we have not re- reached escape velocity, and interest rates within a global sense will not rise?
2: Now, in a global sense, you know we've seen some backup in bonds, kind of a temper tantrum, uh, a bond tantrum in Europe. Um, I don't know how far that will go. You know we have two successful uh, taperings uh, going on uh, in bond markets. Uh, the Bank of England stopped buying bonds on the end of March, and nobody paid any attention. The Fed uh, tapered. Uh, second time successfully, and we have some <clears throat> deflationary or disinflationary forces out there and it 's more than just oil prices, but there 's plenty of slack around you know when you get through all the short term noise, inflation in europe is is under. Uh, it's targeted. It's not going anywhere. So uh, I think that this disinflation uh, in, is going to uh, to hold yeah. down the bond yields.
0: Carl Weinberg, thank you so much. Just terrific perspective on a, uh, Monday. Uh, Michael McKee or, for David Gura. Carl's Out,
2: not, Carl said he's not leaving because he
1: can't get a train back. Can't get a train back. Up <laughs> north. All our guests are going to pile up here in the waiting room, the surveillance I, waiting room. I
0: don't think this is plane, but maybe it's train and bus. For David Gura to Idaho, two days, 13 hours. $400, $393. We should Two join days, 13 hours.
1: Suggesting we should join him?
0: New York to Boise. You know, you should, I guess you can do it. Yep. There's, there's a lot of bus in there. It's not <laughs> as much train as its bus. He didn't take the Gulf Stream.
1: the surveillance stream. No,
0: no, Francine has it in Italy. Oh, darn. No, she really pulled rank on that. It's, a, it's amazing how she does it. And she had a tantrum and said it's got to go out of London City instead of Heathrow because yeah. of the fees. Unreal. Good morning, Francine in Italy. This is Bloomberg. (music) An important interview now. Greg Valier joins us uh, on our phone lines. Greg, we talked to you earlier this morning. Here's the the Valier tweet from the president of the United States. He must have been listening to you and me earlier I cannot imagine that Congress would dare leave Washington without a beautiful new health care bill, fully approved and ready to go. Greg, for Senator McConnell, what is a, quote, beautiful new health care bill, unquote?
3: Anything. He'll take anything, Tom, Uh, anything that uh, could possibly get through the House. But I think that Health reform is on life support right now. I don't see the votes. Uh, they're going to give it a good try in the next couple of weeks. If they can't get this done by the August break, they've got to move on to other things, budget, taxes, because they're going to run out of time this year.
0: What do they, uh, what do, they do with tax reform without health care? I, I thought the two were attached to the hip. Well, they
3: claim they can still move on it, but they've got to get a budget first because the budget will become the vehicle not to get too arcane, but through this reconciliation process, the budget reform will become the vehicle to get tax reform. So I think they may have to cut their losses and say, you know, we'll come back and deliberate health care later, but we've got to
1: move on. I was uh, speaking to someone uh, late, late last week after Congress had come back from the July 4th recess, and they said um, – The surprise is that the Republicans have made very little progress on a budget. Is that the same thing that you're hearing?
3: Yeah, you're right, Mike. I mean, they all agree that defense will get more. And I always say that if there's one pure winner in Washington for investors, it's the defense sector. They'll do well. But then there's total disagreement on what you do with domestic spending. The Democrats' attitude is, look, hey, if you're going to dramatically increase defense, you've got to increase domestic as well. The Republicans don't want to do that, so there could be an impasse on the budget.
1: Which means the government shuts the doors.
3: Yeah, I hate to use the word shutdown because it usually doesn't happen. and You don't want to cry wolf, but, you know, a government shutdown cannot be ruled out on October 1.
1: Especially since the president has suggested that might not be a bad idea. Yeah, he's been all over
3: the, the, the lot on that, and he's got another issue that could be even more explosive. That, of course, is the debt ceiling, which has to be raised by, I think, probably early October.
0: Yeah, but we've heard the debt ceiling argument for decades mm-hmm. and decades. What's different this time, Greg?
3: Well, what's different is that the people in control, Mulvaney and a lot of the House Republicans, have for years, decades, threatened to uh, let the government default. Now they're in power.
0: It's just that simple. I mean, so what? I mean, why are they any different than the previous 87 pretenders that were screaming about the debt ceiling?
3: Well, the... the Big problem is that I don't think Ryan has the votes to get a death ceiling through the House. And, of course, Boehner didn't. He had to go to Nancy Pelosi, and Boehner's now in retirement. Uh, the, the Republican base goes nuts if they have to go to Nancy uh, Pelosi, and they may have to. We've
0: got to make news this morning. Quickly here, are you predicting that Mr. Ryan will join Mr. Boehner in retirement?
3: No, I don't think – if you talk to the base, the Republican base, would
1: love to see him and McConnell go, but I don't think that's Mm going to happen. There's a difference between Ryan and Boehner. It's called sunscreen.
0: Yeah, that's that's (laughs) where I was going to go. Yeah. You know, you know I, I, I've got like eight jokes that would yeah. get me in trouble.
1: <laughs> We've got and a million of folks.
0: Anthony from New Jersey well, would be. The, the good uh, thing is Greg, Greg is staying with us. Greg will be with we'll us to get me into further trouble. Michael McGee, why don't you bring in the esteemed G. Valier? Mm-hmm. Uh, because you're, I think, more linked into the policy battles of Washington. Than
1: Greg, I Raya, of course, is chief global strategist for Horizon Investments, keeps track of all things Washington uh, these days, and he does it without laughing, uh, which is uh, quite an accomplishment. <laughs> Greg, uh, there has been talk among some. In Congress, I don't want to overplay this, but I want to get your thoughts on it, that uh, given the fact that they have accomplished nothing this year and everything is stacking up and uh, so much needs to be done by September 30th, the end of the fiscal year, they might cut the August vacation short. Do you hear any rumblings from the leadership about that?
3: Yeah, well, first of all, Mike, I don't know if I should laugh or cry about what's going on here, but I've heard the same thing as you have, that uh, they could tighten it up. I doubt that very much. I think vacation plans are made. I think that uh, it would be hard to get everybody back uh, to town. So unless the president calls them into a special session, which I doubt, uh, I don't think that's going to happen. But your premise is absolutely right, and that is, things are stacking up. You've only got like 11 or 12 days before the august break and i think health reform therefore is pretty unlikely then you get a lot of other issues when they come back from august especially on the budget
0: that's mike that's like our schedule yeah didn't they just come (laughs) back from break and they got 11 or 12 days to break in the and then a
1: five-week vacation yeah in In the the olden days it wouldn't matter if they go on Five no week vacation because Sam Rayburn would have just called the cardinals in from the appropriations committee exactly they cut right. deals and they would and there would be something waiting for them when they came back nothing like that going to happen this time No,
3: you know, and one of the factors here, people say, well, who cares about this Russian stuff? You know, the media overplays it and blah, blah, blah. No, it does matter because Trump has lost political capital. If he had political capital, it would be like the old Sam Rayburn LBJ days. He'd get some things done. But right now, with a job approval rating in the 30s and with more and more Republicans on Capitol Hill deserting him, it's going to be hard to get a lot done quickly. Uh,
1: There is... um A problem with health care that goes beyond the fact that they can't get a bill passed, and that is that um, Obamacare has problems. And there are issues, particularly with the uh, payments to the exchanges. And then, of course, you've got, um, we are going to get a little arcane here, S-Chip, which is basically, we'll call it Medicare for kids. Oh, there you go. Um, That expires at the end of the fiscal year. You've got two things you have to do in the health care area. Are they going to be able to get those done, or are we going to see a health care crisis?
3: Well, they'll probably get that done, but I don't rule out a crisis that uh, becomes a huge political issue. I mentioned to Tom earlier uh, today that whichever party owns the issue of health care regrets it. It's an albatross, because no one's satisfied. So you've got now, no one's happy with the Republicans, and this could drag on for uh, for quite some time and be a huge factor in making the House in 2018 a, a virtually... Uh, coin toss
0: call well that's right where i wanted to go you know i base it off your work uh, greg vellier or maybe the hill or bloomberg or whatever you mentioned earlier they could lose the house how do the republicans lose the house what's the sort of the the path if you will to that really momentous uh change
3: Well, I think an awful lot of Republicans in fairly moderate northern districts, uh, districts that Hillary Clinton uh, won or did well in, are worried. Uh, They're worried that Trump is an albatross, that he's not helped them, that people want to send a message. You know, all these House races we've seen so far this year, where the Republicans have won, have been in really hostile territory for Democrats. But in the fall of 2018, there's a chance. I'd say where I'm up to close to 50-50, the Democrats take the House. The Senate, however, still looks like a likely uh, retention for the Republicans.
1: R- retention with a reduced margin? They've only got a 2 percent.:
3: Probably margin, reduced. But... They've got 52 now, as you know. You know, I think the Republicans, because of who's up, you know, you've got 10 Republican seats up in states that Trump won. in five of those states Trump won in a landslide. So I think the Republicans might actually gain a seat or two in the Senate.
0: How do the Republicans defend the House if they can't do legislation, let's assume that for the sake of a Monday morning conversation, if they have a president who's not even engaged in their future, what is the strategy to defend the House majority?
3: Well, two things. Number one, they're hoping the economy continues to do well and unemployment stays at around 4%. That's a good story. Number two, I think the Republicans are going to just have to take over this on their own without Trump and say, we're going to get a tax bill moving. We're going to get a budget done. We don't need the White House to screw things up with Mm -hmm. these crazy tweets. And I do think you can get legislation passed, uh, maybe tax reform by the end of the winter, early spring. That still is the best case
1: scenario. Uh, You do, in your latest note, retain a sliver of optimism about tax reform, uh, or or I I presume you mean tax cuts as opposed to reform. But uh, where does that come from?
3: Well, it comes from the fact that you've got the House determined to get a bill done. They're work, They're sitting down two or three times a week with Mnuchin. They're sitting down with the Senate Republicans. I, I think there's a consensus yeah. they can get this done with this very arcane process called reconciliation that can get a bill moving.
0: I, I, I wouldn't bring this up, Greg, but I guess I'm going to bring it up because the chief Twitterer, Is Twittering right now about something. He has
1: nine tweets
3: out.
0: He's he's like like busy. And I mentioned this with you (laughs) earlier, the idea in the opera over the weekend that, that Ms. Trump, Ivanka Trump, was sitting at the G20 table. Now the president dives into this. And he says, when I left the conference room for short meetings with Japan, I asked Ivanka to hold a seat. Very standard. Angela Merkel agrees. And then he comes back and goes, if Chelsea Clinton were asked to hold a seat for her mother as her mother gave our country away, the fake news would say Chelsea for president. I, t- I took this back to Julie and Trisha Nixon. John Tucker, you're too young to remember <laughs> Julie, and, Julie and Trisha Nixon. Sure. But but why are we talking about this, Greg Tom Vellier? Tom
1: Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. <laughs> <laughs> He's so
3: touchy. He's so sensitive to criticism. And he doesn't let any slight pass. The bigger story, obviously, is Russia. He is obsessed of with course, Russia. Of course, but... He won't let it pass. The wounds are self-inflicted. And I made the analogy this morning in the piece I write with LBJ in Vietnam. LBJ was obsessed with Vietnam. He miscalculated. You've got Trump doing the same thing in the great yeah. irony here guys is that the russian story will be kept alive by Trump, because he won't let it go.
0: The Associated Press moments ago, the spokesman for Mr. Putin says the Kremlin is, quote, unaware of a meeting between Donald Trump's senior staff and a Russian lawyer during the 2016 campaign. They go on with a background. <laughs>
1: Certainly shocking. It, that it's
0: shocking that they yeah. deny that. Greg, help our beleaguered audience, most of them with kids at Penn Station trying to figure out how to go east, <laughs> north, southwest. Right. Summarize for us What you've learned in the last 24 hours about all this Russian stuff.
3: Well, if people waiting for trains have the time, uh, the New York Times piece is really quite uh, fascinating. It's like a spy novel. Uh, This Russian attorney, uh, who would be a a good movie character, uh, clearly had ties to the Kremlin and had some very shady clients. Uh, She met with him, and she got a meeting just by saying, I got dirt on Hillary Clinton. Uh, That raises a lot of issues, to have the inner circle of Manafort when he was still Um, there, Trump Jr., all these (laughs) people now. Involved Kushner now involved with this meeting. This is one of many story guys, stories
1: that Mueller is going to have yeah. to dig into. He's going to be a busy man. Yeah, uh, surveillance correction. We are now up to 11 Trump tweets. He is apparently alone He's in the White house and he is uh, tweeting like crazy this morning. I don't I, think I, I've I, seen so many.
0: I agree. I don't think I've ever seen uh, so many. Uh, Greg Villiers, thank you so much for wisdom on uh, some of this. I can't believe we're talking about some of this, but there we go. As we do economics, finance, investment, international relations, politics, and tweets. <laughs> Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. com slash vr. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner and Smith, Incorporated. Joining us now uh, with BlackRock and their real assets, uh, Division uh, Jim Barry uh, joins us. Jim, I think we need to define that. That's that's enough of an odd. What is BlackRock Real Assets? Is that Larry Fink's limo? Yeah,
4: <laughs> 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 but the good news is BlackRock only invests in real assets. But in the asset management yeah. industry, that nomenclature is being used by a lot of people to define. Areas like infrastructure, real estate, agricultural land, um, timber—so assets that have kind of kind of a more real significance in the economy, uh, uh, practical significance. In
0: 1976, Pennsylvania Central Railroad fell apart, and we saw the infrastructure of the Northeast deteriorate into a bunch of holdings. John Tucker and I talking about Grand Central, which is owned by private individuals, Arjun and, and Andrew Penson and, and all that. Does money wanna be in infrastructure today? Does money wanna be in the stuff that in the newspapers is headaches, headaches, headaches?
4: So capital is really attracted to infrastructure because when projects are structured correctly, it's going to give really long-term predictable cash flow and yielding um, investments to pension funds and insurance companies, which they're crying out for. Um, And there's strong and historically been strong relative value in the asset class as well. The trick is the structuring of the projects. Um, the reality is that uh, that's very tough to do. It's very tough to do well. And so all this capital is out there. would love to invest in Grand Central or Penn Station and are the rail tracks or the rail operators if the investment is presented in a structured way that where the risks are very clearly determined and where the private sector capital feels it can handle and actually do better or manage those risks better than the public sector. If you
1: were to get some sort of public-private partnership, like they've been talking about in Washington, for infrastructure, then who should structure the deals? The government is going to want to have a
4: say in how this is structured, but Do you think that could work? So where this has been done well historically, and there's multiple examples throughout the world, it requires some element of a federal or central agency that takes responsibility. There's a huge amount of complexity to these transactions. And so that center of expertise is absolutely critical. Um, You then have to identify projects that make sense. and, And this is really important. Uh, P3's public-private partnerships are not an end in themselves. They are just one form of procurement option available to the public sector. And they only make sense if the risk you transfer to the private sector um, means that you get more value because it's going to cost you more. You go
0: down Park Avenue, and for our global audience, it's something I think everyone knows. It's in every single movie. And there's a MetLife building. Guys like you argued about air rights to make that thing happen. In 2017, could the MetLife building be built, the Pan Am building?
4: So what you'll find is that the private sector will run scared from those kind of permitting risks if it wants to invest in infrastructure. That's a risk better borne by the public sector. And so for want of a better description, those kind of risks should be removed and off the table by the time it comes to the private sector for investment. Because you're right, today, you know, an institutional capital will not take that risk.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, Mike, that's a huge issue in all this uproar about infrastructure.
4: And I think, I mean, this is an important point. There is zero correlation between need for infrastructure and addressable investment opportunity. And that's global. And so the challenge is for the government to sort of, in any uh, jurisdiction, to shape projects in a way makes them addressable by the private sector. But the capital is there, and the capital is particularly there for countries like the United States who are at the higher quality end of the OECD.
1: We have no idea what Congress and the president are come up with as far as infrastructure, but the plan floated during the campaign was that the government would give investors basically some sort of guarantee – uh, and a tax break. Do you need that, or, or or are people
4: willing to invest without some sort of backstop? So so there's a myriad of ways you can incent the private sector to invest, but it's all about the risk and the return. And so if you need a tax credit or an incentive to give you part of your return, then that's fine. But at the end of the day, what works best for governments is where they create substantial programs that brings a whole ecosystem to compete, the contractors, the equipment suppliers and the capital. And and, and in a sense, in that competition, the government ensures it gets best value for money. But it does require you to put in place the uh, the, the policy and the executive administration to make it happen.
0: This is fabulous. Jim Barry with us at BlackRock Real Estate. We're going to come back. They have a fabulous website where you can click on the different investments they have. And what's cool, cool about the 30 or 40 dots on the screen, every one of them, Mike McKee has a story. We'll come back to some of those stories about you know, what do you really do about in- infrastructure in building in a time as we see with the MetLife Pin Am building where things have changed. With Jim Barry at BlackRock Real Estate. This is Bloomberg. Stay with us, and good morning. Uh, I'm thrilled to have with us Jim Barry. He's with uh, BlackRock Real Assets and our global head. Their wonderful website goes all the different projects that they're involved in. And as is, is John Tucker and I commiserate about Penn Station and, you know, all that kind of thing, there are the columns of Lima, Peru, where there was 20, 30 years of total stasis on trying to build infrastructure in Lima, Peru, and then a consortium Argentina-Brazil wandered in, I guess you wandered in with them to jumpstart that. What are the lessons you learned at Lima, Peru, with a Lima Metro, that Washington or New York or or any other city in the United States could use?
4: Well, I think it's it's a poster child for how to go about it. And ultimately the Peruvian government decided that public-private partnerships or P3s were an appropriate procurement option for a range of assets, including that uh, uh, Lima light rail metro. And so uh, they created a central agency. They took the lessons and learnings that that were there in Europe and elsewhere to develop that program, and then they shaped the projects. And back to one of your earlier observations, they took a lot of the risks that the private sector was not able to bear, like permitting, etc., And they took them on and then shaped a project where the private sector took construction risk, they took operating risk, and then they got paid for that and will get paid for that over the next 25, 30 years.
1: Well, is, uh, is that something that can be um, successfully replicated?
4: So absolutely, and has been around the world and has been replicated here in the United States. Um, we've lent money to a street lighting project in Michigan. There's a P3 project in LaGuardia at the moment. Um, There's a number of them around the country. The challenge you have is that it's different states taking different initiatives, and so it's very fragmented. I think for it to get real momentum, it requires some federal initiative, some federal agency to to give it shape and to incent the states to, to use the procurement method.
1: Well, what about the U.S. now? How do we go about designing a program? If from an investor's point of view, you had free reign, What would you do to try to start building an infrastructure
5: program?
4: So the first thing, and it's back to my point, the private sector is not an end in itself. If you want immediate impact, you've got to fund your existing agencies, And that can be done through various bond or or other initiatives to allow them to raise more capital to invest or with direct grants to invest. That's the fastest way to impact what's being done. (coughs) And that should be done in a cohesive, strategic way so that you prioritize the most critical, particularly transport projects that need investment. I think beyond that, there's huge merit to considering a more broad federal public-private partnership program for transport and social infrastructure. That requires setting up a federal agency. And I think it will have to provide some form of fiscal incentive to the states where most of this activity will place to adopt the methodology.
0: Okay, that's all great. But what will be the catalyst? Do you just assume we need quote unquote crisis to get there? Or can there be adults that say, we want our trains to run like the Swiss, let's
4: do it? Look, this is ultimately a political issue, thank you fundamentally yeah, I agree with that. yeah. okay, because uh, the reality is the United States, not unlike a number of other um, uh, Western economies, has underinvested in its infrastructure over the last thirty forty years, and you 're bearing the consequence of that, but it 's not a hard cash cost it's, 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 it plays out in in economic um, uh, activity or the, the lack of productivity or reduced productivity it 's a cost borne by commuters, but it 's not a cash cost you pay out. You you can shove more cars down that road. You can shove more people through that airport. And, and unless it gets to safety issues like it has in Penn Station, it doesn't trigger the response. It does require, and there is, it is one of the few truly bipartisan issues in Congress, it requires political action to decide how are we going to pay for this because that's the conundrum. You've got to pay for it either through taxes or user charges. You've got to take grasp that political nettle and then decide how to implement it.
1: Here's the issue that we were talking about during the break. Uh, Much of what we need in infrastructure is repair, like Penn Station. There's
4: no cash flow from that. So you don't want to be involved, I would imagine. So unfortunately, the private sector does not invest for nothing. Uh, But whether it's the public sector or the private sector, it has to be paid for. And so that's the political decision. Do you give... Amtrak more capital directly, either allowing it uh, through direct government grant, or do you allow it raise or more bonds and money and capital in the markets, or do you shape a project within its environments for particular private sector investment as a P3? These are the decisions, but fundamentally, you have to decide okay. where's the money coming from. But
0: globally, in our audience coast to coast, good morning, Bloomberg, 106.1 FM, Boston, 99.1 FM, Washington, 960, the Bay Area, Sirius XM. Channel 119, the distance is how long it takes, Jim Barry for you to walk from Penn Station to Grand Central. Here's the way everyone perceives it. Grand Central, well run. Penn Station, not. What's the distinction you see there between those two geographies?
4: Well, again, I mean, the specifics of that would be very hard to say. I mean, clearly there's a different ownership context in both. Um, and maybe a different incentive um, uh, dynamic for our capital. I mean, uh, and so certainly there's a, obviously private sector ownership in Grand Central. So every element of that is geared towards uh, improving the commuter experience a lot and uh, providing opportunity for them to spend money uh, as they pass through, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think that ultimately private sector, if it sees investment opportunity return, will get the capital. I think if you're public sector, you may see the need for investment, but you may not have access to the capital.
0: The difference, Mike, there to make it more apparent is Oyster Bar Grand Central Krispy (laughs) Kreme Penn Station. I mean, mean, Jim (laughs) and I are from Boston. I mean, they can't even do Dunkin' Donuts right at Penn Station, (laughs) let alone Krispy Kreme.
1: Um, Give me an example of and I realize that everybody's going to be looking for shovel-ready projects. But what's the the best, m- most interesting thing that somebody could propose for an infrastructure investment that you at BlackRock would be interested in?
4: So uh, the, the, any project can be interesting. It's, it's about making it addressable from a private sector perspective, which means you need to have the risk clearly defined. Um, and I, as the private sector, need to feel I can manage that risk and execute on it. Whether that's a road, a courthouse, a hospital... Um, uh, a power plant, it doesn't matter. I'm still going to break down the risk and understand, can I take that on? I want to be paid for it, but the value for money the public sector gets is that yeah. I'll do it better. You won't be dealing with delays and you won't deal dealing with cost overruns. Oh,
0: this is, go, go uh, on, just please, a quick, quick
1: please, uh, please, uh, please. question about it. Uh, looking for a list of things to invest in, would you like to see something like an infrastructure bank, uh, which
4: people have talked about?
1: or should this be done on a, as a project-by-project project basis?
4: So I think it's very hard to do this on a project-by-project project basis unless it's large enough. LaGuardia being an example. It's big enough that people will come to play because of this individual scale. But fundamentally, this has historically been best done by creating a central agency, whether you call it a bank or something else, but something that will mm-hmm. create more cohesion around the way these are structured, You'll know, simplify and standardize contracts, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, in a way... Everyone will come to play, and when you get everyone coming to play, you get competition and you get better value for money.
0: So, so in terms of large projects, much bigger than LaGuardia, was BlackRock involved in the rebuilding of Fenway Park?
4: No, we were not involved in the okay. Fenway, not, unless we lent some bonds, which would be a different part of the house. That would be a different that would have
0: part been, of the house. They would have wanted a cash flow and, and season again. tickets. <laughs> they would have wanted it. I was just trying to get to a game, you know, Yankees Red Sox later this year. Jim Barry, thank you so much. Really wonderful with BlackRock. Uh, real assets today, just fascinating. We don't usually do that, and that was very, very good. I'm scrolling down here through the past of history. That's what you do uh, when Robert Hormats enters the studio. Of course, his public service to the nation under Secretary of State for Secretary Clinton, serving both Republicans and Democrats. Over the years. Bob, I don't want to get you upset, but I'll bet you the steam was coming out of the Hermadian ears. Let's go back to November of 1975 in the first of these G meetings, the G6 summit. Right. Rambouillet, I think I pronounced that right. Exactly right. of, of uh, In France. And this was Gerald Ford with Secretary Kissinger. Any president gets up from the table and needs to go visit this, visit that. And I would have suggested that Secretary Kissinger, full disclosure, you work for Kissinger Associates, would have taken the seat of the president. Were you a bit taken back that Secretary Tillerson didn't take the seat of the president?
5: I was very surprised. I was a planner and a participant in about 12 of these G summits over the years, and In every case, when the president got up to do whatever he had to do, the secretary of state or periodically the secretary of the treasury would sit in for him. So this clearly represents a Mm -hmm. first in the history of these summits.
0: And Michael McKee, the president tweeting out not once but twice about this. This this has become a sensitive issue, which I I thought would go away.
1: He's very sensitive to any perceived criticism, but I'm wondering – how how big a deal is it? I mean, yeah, it's sort of not done. It's, uh, you know, it's eating with your fingers instead of your utensils. But does it make a real difference in the long run?
5: It doesn't make a real difference in the long run. But symbolically, I think it looked to these other countries who understand the precedent of having cabinet members sit in for the president when the president mm-hmm. leaves or if a prime minister leaves periodically, a cabinet member will sit in. This is a little bit unusual. I think it was much more that it was disturbing symbolically than that it had any major right. substantive effect.
0: I want to ask the two of I'm interviewing Michael McKee now, folks, with this <laughs> wonderful experience of Gorbachev and Reagan. Michael McKee, was it a G-19 summit?
1: That was a G-2 mm. t- That was just <laughs> the U.S. And no, the, I don't mean this, the but no. Oh, saw this one. Weekend, this yes, one was, it was a Well, I mean, everybody's characterizing it as G-19 versus one because the U.S. policies are, are so focused on the United States as opposed to... Uh, what's best for the group. And that kind of is is a different view of how the G20 works. Ambassador?
5: Yes, I think it really represents a, a bigger issue in the sense, not the who sit at the table issue, but the question of American leadership. President Trump says he wants to make America great again. I submit America is great now and has been great for a long time. And one of the reasons America has been great, certainly in the foreign policy area, but also in terms of the domestic economy is, our strength is due in part to our strength at home. But it's also great and strong because we have strong alliances. We have strong friendships. We have developed strong international institutions over the course of 70 years of which we are the leader in most of them and the trendsetter and and the convener in many cases. And the G20, as well as the G7, G8, are among those institutions. We have been able in the past to use the G20 to help shape the course of the global economy. Now, with the United States being perceived as, uh, and by its own actions, seen as odd man out, not being a leader in the process, certainly when it comes to trade, when it comes to environmental issues. We're weakening our global leadership, and to make America great again, you need a a, a global economy that functions well, global systems that function well. If we're not in the process of shaping those, they're going to be shaped, but they're going to be shaped by others, not by us. That's going to weaken. Us from a political point of view, and an economic point of view, and a security point of view. Did Did you see the um,
1: video, the the news report by that Australian television reporter, the political commentator from one of the networks down there it was viral over the weekend, uh, where he talked about. Uh, Donald Trump being isolated, sort of the, the the guy that nobody wanted to sit with or talk to at the G20. And he said it represents, to the Australian point of view, the U.S. withdrawing from the world and we will miss you when you're gone.
5: Well, I think that probably is an exaggeration. Many people did want to talk to him because they didn't really know what his views were. So they wanted to get a better sense of what he was planning to do, what he was thinking about, what his policies were. And they also know that he looks at governance domestically and internationally, particularly internationally, as very personal. So Mm. they make a major effort to get along with him and to uh, develop a friendly relationship with him, first to try to understand him and second to try to influence his position. So they wanted to talk to him. But The U.S. as a global leader certainly suffered a major setback at the G20.
1: We kind of know where you're coming from and you work for Henry Kissinger and all that sort of thing. Uh, But just in general, (laughs) can we do what Donald Trump suggests we can do and that is go our own way and uh, succeed by – putting America first and America's interests first and not working with other people if we don't want to. Is that a viable, if unliked, strategy?
5: Well, as I mentioned a moment ago, I think it's not an either-or situation. If you want to make America great again, you need to have great alliances. You need to have great friendships. The ability to project American influence and power around the world depends on strong alliances and strong friendships. And if you're undermining those alliances and causing them to come into question, if you're sniping at Germany and many other countries who are key in this alliance uh, in, in Europe, then it is not going to strengthen America. It's going to weaken America. And I, and I fear that he looks at it as an either or situation. Yeah. I look at a great America as being great in part because yeah. of these alliances and these friendships and the global order, economic, political, and security order, that we have led the process of developing for 70 years, that has been critical to the greatness of America, the prosperity of America, and the security of America.
0: Give us a quick update on General McMaster. Where does he fit into the White House mix into the next six months?
5: Well, he's clearly a very competent, highly respected individual. But I think that from a national security point of view, there are a lot of questions as to how much influence he actually has on the president. He did not sit in, which to me was an enormous surprise, in the meeting with uh, President Putin, uh, nor, of course, did the Russian national security adviser. But traditionally, uh, as we see from China and many other major mm-hmm. meetings, the national security adviser and the secretary of state sit in. So this certainly was uh, harmful to his uh, image Uh, both at home and abroad.
0: Robert Hormat's with us, and we will continue. He's with Kissinger Associates, an important book a number of years ago, and being strong abroad is about being fiscally strong at home. Maybe we can touch on that here uh, in a bit. Bloomberg Surveillance this morning, we are honored, beyond honored, to have with us Robert Hormats the last few days with us, to have him once is great, to have him twice is, uh, just goes right over to honor. The New York Times with a great summary, Ambassador, of what you and you, you – how big was your staff at State? Like you have 25 people working for you?
5: I had actually 20 – about 20 in my immediate office and about yeah. 250 in the broader yeah. economic – Uh, foreign policy, uh, energy, and environmental area that I was in charge
0: of. And you were so well-known as someone of grace and confidence and dignity that even you would understand saying President Abe of Japan or mixing up the imagery on Instagram of the leadership of Singapore with the leadership of Indonesia or somehow slipping up on China as being from Taiwan is not a way to do diplomacy. This is not in Kissinger's diplomacy, is it?
5: No, I think it's shocking uh in that it shows other countries uh and Americans that this is not a well thought out process when you don't really have people who can understand these differences that the people's Republic of China is not the Republic is of China. very different yeah. from the Republic of China in many 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 ways um and for these mistakes to constantly creep in it's almost a systematic Uh, evidence of disdain for the process that you don't take more time and more care in making sure what you say and what you print and what you hand out is accurate, at least get things right from from a point of view of accuracy. What's
0: important here, Ambassador, is this morning Secretary Summers with, I believe, one political philosophy and Robert J. Samuelson over at The Washington Post with many would argue a different philosophy come to pretty much the same conclusion. What's the Hormats to-do list for Secretary Tillerson to write the ship or respect for, you know, for your grace and dignity? Would you suggest the Secretary is part of the problem?
5: Well, I think the Secretary of State should be the person, along with the National Security Advisor, um, McMaster, who institutes and ensures that we have a very consistent, well-thought-out process for developing our strategy – and for developing positions for these meetings that are consistent uh, and have some long-term strategic goals. And when these mistakes are made, it looks as if there's no consistency, that it's just individuals with very little experience, very little knowledge writing things that don't make sense and are insulting to other yeah. countries, by the way. So I think that the, what this administration lacks is what Dwight Eisenhower understood from the early days of the National Security Council staff, and as you need a consistent policy for deciding on long-term strategic positions, implementing them, and making sure that the way you present them makes yeah. sense to people and yeah. is accurate. This is very important. I mean, one example of inconsistency is that he gives a speech talking about strong Western values in, in, in Warsaw, yeah. 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 one of which is, Freedom of expression, the ability of people to express their views, freedom of the press. And then he attacks the press. Not only does he attack the press and the basic values of free expression, but he attacks them with Putin. And in, in a meeting with with Putin – What did says, you
0: think of their meeting? Just Just – you know, I, I, I thought, left I thought they.
5: You. I thought they. They did make a little progress on Syria, but there have been other ceasefires that haven't worked. I do think that leaving the issue of Russian intervention in American, election, American elections. Uh, And the way, well, he said this and he said this without any uh, any kind of resolution and without saying, we want your assurances. You're not going to do this again, that this is not going to happen again, that you're going to stop doing this, not just in the United States, but in other Western countries that you're trying to destabilize. Now, you don't have to have all the detailed evidence. And the Russians frequently say, if you don't have the evidence, we're not going to pay attention. You make the point very strongly. Whoever it came from, whatever it was done for, this cannot continue. And assert this rather than sort of leave it, well, we're going to move on. It's not something you can move on. If you're undermining American democracy from Moscow, whoever is doing it, it should stop.
0: Finally, um, uh, Ambassador, what is the relationship of Mr. Putin to his secretary of state? I believe Mr. Lavrov. Is it like Tillerson? Is it totally different? Or is Putin his own secretary of state?
5: This is a great question. It's finally good one of the week. I know know Sergei Lavrov very well. We worked together um, when I was at the State Department, and of course I knew him when he was here. He was ambassador to the UN. He is a very shrewd, very accomplished diplomat, and uh, whether one agrees with him or not, and there's certainly a lot of areas where I disagree and where the U.S. disagrees with him, he's a very competent diplomat, and he does have... Putin's ear. Putin does listen to him. Putin has a lot of foreign policy experience because he was in the KGB, lived in Dresden. He knows Western Mm -hmm. Europe pretty pretty well, Germany very well. But he also knows that Lavrov has lived here. He relies on Lavrov a lot. He has a very close relationship. And Lavrov in his press conference and the way he presents himself is very sophisticated with a lot of experience. And I, I don't so far see that Tillerson has the close relationship with uh, President Trump yeah. that uh, that Lavrov has with um, President Putin, yeah. and it's been developed over the years. So he wouldn't be there so long, as long as he has been, if he didn't have close Do relations Do you want to take up Putin. a
0: residency with surveillance? You could just come in here like once or twice a week. It's such a really great show. About- I
5: listen to it all the time, and when I come here, I love coming. The
0: Hormats here. Residency. Robert mm-hmm. Hormats, thank you Thanks, so much. Tom. Greatly Thanks. appreciate it. The Kissinger Associates, and we greatly appreciate his attendance the last few days. Really terrific perspective on, you know, not for me to editorialize, but what many people are calling G19 after uh, what we observe. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts. SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.